Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian rugby union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian rugby union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrant. So the time is just after midnight on the 21st of November, Sunday, uh, in the UK, uh, Greenwich Mean Time, or she maybe where UTC, I, I can never remember these days, um, but I'm, uh, I'm still awake. I've just watched a hell of a lot of rugby. Um, I have a bottle of Nikka whiskey, uh, Japanese whiskey, which I was going to toast and drink uh, after a Wallaby win, which would have been the revenge for the Welsh uh, loss in Japan uh, a little over two years ago. However, revenge was not sweet, but I'm going to drink the whiskey anyway, because uh, at this point in time, I don't think it really matters. And I'm, I'm glad to say that I'm, I'm not alone. I'm joined by the one and only Rev, aka Mitch, from Rugby Fixation, who is on the other side of the world at a slightly different time zone. And, uh, mate, you, you, you're more than welcome to uh, pour yourself a uh, something strong and, uh, and and join me. But thanks for coming on, Rev. I wish I'd seen that whiskey before you'd press record because it's it's 10 a.m. Uh, in Queensland at the moment. And while the neighbours might frown, um, you know, upon me for having that cracked open uh, before midday, I think there's probably enough justification and reason to do that. I think um, if I just point to the TV and show them what I'd watched, like, you know, I understand here, pour some out for me too, brother. Um, look, I, 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 I'm, I'm calling this the, the Wallaby therapy session. If people are listening, I'm hoping they're listening either uh, on a Monday or a Tuesday or uh, they're, they're possibly recovering. Uh, they're possibly going through the, the various um, cycles of a Wallaby fan from um, anger, resentment, disappointment, um, confusion. And, and, and I think kind of, you know, th- this is a very safe space, so I, I'm glad that uh, we can we can have this moment to to talk openly. Um, but you, mate, have been for me one of the the beacons of not just positivity, but I have sensed in our private chats that you're you're perhaps having maybe a bit of bit of personal conflict with sort of where things are at in the last two weeks. So you know, please, you're in a safe space. Talk me through it. Um, you know, where are you at? I'd say you've read me like a book. I, for the longest time, have been uh, the optimist in my group of mates. So we'll watch a game and, you know, never believe it'll be against the All Blacks and we lose. And, you know, there'll be all the, the negative responses. And I'll tend to be the one that looks for this one thing. Like, well, actually, we could look to this. And if, you know, we do X, Y, Z better, then maybe we get something out of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, um, it's a hard one. It's like when you're going through these, these tough losses, you always go back to, well, look, you know, it, it wasn't so bad so long ago. And I think there's that short-term, uh, that short-term boost, which was, yeah, I'm sure the elation of, 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 of beating France and obviously beating the Springboks twice in Australia. Um, I suppose, I suppose for me, and I, I don't know whether we, we, you know, I'm obviously a little bit older than you and I have this sort of, time period for me of what the wallabies were and i it's funny looking at social media today i've seen probably people who are probably along my sort of age group who are ranting big time and lamenting and 
tossing it out. And I've totally been there. And I have, you know, I mean, I've definitely, even tonight, I might have committed some common assault against some of my furniture um, <laughs> during that game, which is all standard and fun. But I'm sort of a little more at peace. It's probably not the best way to say it. I'm, I'm a little more understanding of why we are where we are and what's going on. And that's vastly different from three years ago, which was, you know, basically what this time three years ago, we lost to uh, England at Twickenham. I was there, went with my dad and we, I was, I was so annoyed, but also very confused. And I remember the final indignity was actually when I, I left, there was an English fan who I'd been sort of going back and forth with throughout the game. Yeah. We shook hands. And um, he just said to me, mate, what's, what's wrong with you guys? And I couldn't answer that question. I was like, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. And it, that question stuck with me probably for about a year until the World Cup. And then World Cup plays out. And that's pretty much where Gold Digger started because it was like, you bugger it. I want to know. I, you know, the curiosity has got the better of me. But it's also that fan frustration of every year going through the same point of asking questions but not knowing the answers. And I think two years later, after starting, you know, the film and now doing this podcast, I'm not saying I'm happy with tonight's result or the last few weeks, but I can kind of almost cope with it now because I've got a lot more, I'm more informed, I think, about why Australian rugby is a bit of a rut. But it is tough. And, you know, as I said, I, I think there's a lot of people lashing out, largely at the ref, which is always the, the, the way initially. But it will be interesting come... Monday, Tuesday, if the conversation starts to shift to, okay, refing aside and all the sort of bad calls, all the things that kind of we can't control, what can we control and what haven't we controlled well this year? Yeah, it's tough with a decision like that too because I think the biggest talking point out of the game was clearly the refereeing. And for me, it's been a talking point all year. The difference between the refereeing is sometimes it's down to the interpretation of the referee and sometimes it's down to these are the laws, these are the frameworks. If they're following them accurately, sometimes you have to make a call that looks ridiculous. Mm. And and the challenge, I think, is we've got a bit of time between now and Six Nations. They need to review the laws because, unfortunately, that Valentina red card was a red card by definition. Um, yep. Although looking at it as it happened, I thought, oh, yeah, great. There's big contact. Sure, um, their heads touch each other, but, you know, That'll happen. I mean, I've got it has with so many players playing and I've played a, a fraction of the games these guys have. Um, not the end of the world, really, in my opinion. I, I thought, carry on. But that is the framework and they're trying to make sure that they're looking after player welfare and safety. So I understand that. But then we get to the decisions like the, the knockdown from Beal. Mm. And to me, that's a fatal issue with how we're looking at... Um, all refereeing calls because all these intercept attempts and all that, it's literally just down to whether the referee thinks they had a realistic chance or not, regardless of intent. Well, well, it was, yeah. I mean, the interpretation there, you're right. Like I have no issues with the Valentini. Like if you, they need to start realizing that world rugby have, you know, passed these laws, referees are cracking down, you know, they knew, they knew that that was going to be at least a card and I, and I had no issues with it. But the, the, the thing that annoyed me about the, the bill, you know, the Beal um, card was just, it almost felt from the minute it had happened, he was screwed. Like they were going to find a reason. The way the referees, because you could follow their 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 conversation 
And when they started saying that, oh, well, his, you know, his, um, his, his arms don't look, uh, it's a very unnatural, um, an unnatural position. What is an unnatural position for, for an arm? And, and when the guy, and if you watch it, the guy runs at Bill. So it's not like Bill was in the channel and has literally cut off the ball between the ball carrier, the ball receiver. The guy has run at him and he has actually wrapped and through that wrap has gone through the ball. I mean, I, I disagreed with the commentator. I don't know whether you guys, you were sure to stand. So we had Welsh commentary with Stephen Larkham over here. And um, the Welsh commentator, who's the, and yeah, you always got to have the one-eyed guy, right? He was obviously the, the Welsh kind of Phil Kearns equivalent. And he's saying, oh, his eyes are always, you know, follow his eyes. Follow his eyes? He doesn't take his eyes off the man. He's not actually looking at the ball. So, you know, but you're exactly right. It was totally down to an interpretation rather than a set of guidelines that the, the, the referees. And I think that is something that has to be addressed because that will continue to just be a, a massive divisive moment in the game, which is just not a positive thing. And, and the problem on top of that is I think there seems to be that mentality now where this year, strangely, the Wallabies have actually been quite successful when down a man. Mm. And I think for me, I had shades of optimism this morning, just thinking back to Corin Betty's red card against France. I'm like, hey, we went on to win that. Yeah, that yep. was a tight game. We resolved, we, like, we sort of rallied together. And there were some real shades about that this morning as well, I've got to say. Like, we, until that last penalty, I thought we might actually do this. And on the back of what you're saying, Curtly Beal did have his best game. I was definitely paying for blood. I thought, you know, he hasn't showed anything in the um, two previous fixtures. Let's get some of the youth in there. Mm. But the try that he set up for Nick White, like the the ability to break down all those different little, um, different plays that only elite athletes see in that time, to beat Halaholo on the inside step, to be able to palm off their number eight, Wainwright, in a really impressive display, but also get the pass off. Yep. You're, we haven't had a fullback do that but in back, a back, long back time. Just Banks doesn't do that sort of stuff. Um, Hodge no. might be able to do that, but I don't think he's as, as he's got that sort of open play quality as much. And and I mean, who else? Who else can kind of do that? And then for me, it's also just that kick at the end. You know, there's probably very few players that would step up and go, well, I've done this before and I do this all the time and I've got no qualms taking this this shot and you know look i'm not suggesting he has the fullback that's it like you know shut the gate like but i i would have thought that beal probably has to be in that world cup squad in two years time because if he keeps playing in france he's going to be getting a lot of game time he's going to be in should be in good condition you know and he'll be in france like you know he should be a little more comfortable playing there and 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 with the atmosphere but you know what he can bring uh, for that one moment or one, one game is probably worth it alone, even if he's just an yeah. impact player. No, it, it makes a massive difference, I think, that we could have some of his calibre coming through. And to me, this is a real make or break because we still haven't heard whether we're going to get any clarification on the Ghetto Law or its mm. amendments. I know that's something that's been a good talking point between our group, um, yeah. you know, discussing some of the intricacies of who should be in and should be out, but for me, the biggest issue what we had uh, through that European tour was just squad instability. Oh, I mm. couldn't get over the fact that we had all these players playing outrageous, awesome attacking rugby, but some really smart rugby against the Springboks in Argentina. Mm. And then we get to Japan and suddenly this squad of 37 people we've named is down to 31 people. Um, 
after one match. And there's only one injury. But we've had all these players step down for other reasons. Um, COVID's caused so many different hiccups, but we've really got to settle on a squad now because, yeah. if I'm being honest, I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing New Zealand sort of fumble around a bit at the end of the year is they don't have a settled side because they've been chopping and changing so much. And we don't have the depth or luxury to be able to do that. It is it is that thing of these these tours at the end of the year where you know it, it does have an impact. I know, you know people are going to sort of get excited about the fact that all the Southern Hemisphere teams got beaten today, but you know we are coming to the end of our season. Fatigue is a thing. Um, you know player squads have been stretched, and you know what look Wales might argue them they didn't have a strong string of players as well, and that's fair enough. But for the the wider majority of those teams in the Northern Hemisphere, their their season's just starting. Guys are pretty fresh. Um, they they should be they should be kind of in a pretty good pretty good nick physically and and you know not making excuses. But that's always I think you know one of those factors. Same as when they come to Australia, some of these guys are coming at the end of a very long season. It's a long way. They have to travel. You know that is also a factor. Um, but I think kind of the yeah, I mean, you know, you're right. The Giddo Law seems to be a thing. I, you know, put my hand up and say I'm not a fan of of foreign players. I would much rather us have a system by which we we retain our players and keep them playing together in Australia, um, not just for fans, but also I think it's in the long run it's better for the for the team, and it's actually it, 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 that's what leads to more consistency in performance rather than trying to bring together guys from different locations and 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 hope that the the training camp gets it all ironed out it's interesting that in the last couple of days there was an an article in the um herald which i saw a lot of people jumping about from um malcolm knox who i've never spoken to i don't really know much about i know he's sort of journalist but um i think it obviously ruffled a lot of feathers um because it was written you know he certainly threw a lot of um barbs at, at rugby australia and a few of the the, the people personally but you know i thought aside from sort of what you think about the article he asks some pretty fair questions around you know where is rugby australia positioning itself with the players it's going to choose from and how it's going to operate with having some of these great players in japan and europe you know i think covid's definitely sort of forced their hand this year to have to sort of make a few changes and i think that was one thing the article definitely didn't appreciate was that some of the decisions to choose Karemi, uh, Sammy Karemi and, and Quay Cooper were forced upon them because they could only choose players who were conveniently in Queensland and the other, you know, training camp. But, you know, I think it is sort of fair that Rugby Australia in the next couple of months before, you know, next year starts, they need to probably put some clarity together, not just for fans, but probably for players and, you know, clubs around the world. What were your thoughts? Did you read that article at all? Did you, did you have any thoughts about it? Yeah, I, I did read it. And for, for me, it just comes back to there needs to be clarity around what the move is going forward so that the mm. players that we want have the chance to make the, the tough decision, but the decision nonetheless of am I going to stay in Australia to you know represent a super rugby team so that I can play for the Wallabies and play with my teammates week in, week out? Or are the rules going to be set up as such that, you know, if they can select maybe five players internationally, then I've got to be in the top five, um, you know, working my ass off, making sure that I can be in a position to get into the Wallabies. Or if it says open slather, 
then they've got to come up with some sort of, I guess, internal or intrinsic motivation to get that done. But personally, I don't think that we can really have a clear step forward until we know mm. who can be selected in the team. To me, it's something that separates all the other teams. They've got a really clear understanding, um, whether it be South Africa who can pick whoever, whether it be Ireland, whether they have to be in Ireland. You know, all these nations that are you know doing the right thing, they do have a clear guideline of what's going on. And strangely, the only other team that's sort of been a bit flippant or in a similar position of unsurety with their squad discussions and selections is Wales, who had a similar, I think, 60 or 70 cap um, selection for a time being. And I'd say they're in a pretty similar position to us at the moment. I don't think either of us are in the sort of top tier of New Zealand, South Africa, France or England. Um, And I guess you can throw Ireland in there at the moment too, like... We're pushing for a bit of identity, and I think the sooner we know that, uh, the better. And this was something you said to me off, off offline when we were chatting, and I think it's a fair call. Is that you know trying to come to terms with the fact that we're we're probably not considered a a tough a tough um, a tough uh, fixture anymore. And even today, uh, watching England and, and South Africa, and um, uh, I'm trying to think who it was. It was one of the English players was interviewed afterwards and just saying, they're just talking about how, you know, it was great today. This is what a real, you know, international rugby is like. And I was like, shit, does yeah. that mean last week wasn't, you know, <laughs> a real um, international fixture? And But, you know, i got to be honest with you, you know, watching the way South Africa played, you know, they, they took England to the limits and we just did not do that last week, despite people will argue that, you know, you know, we were close until the end. I just didn't feel like we were looking threatened at all last week. And 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 yes, we didn't. It didn't blow out, but it never really looks like we were threatening England in the way that that South Africa did it. And and that's again led to the point that I I think the Wallabies should have that plastered in their changing rooms, tattooed on their arms, written on the little bandages they wrap around their wrists. Because for me. Every news outlet that I was reading that was English-based or Scottish-based kept saying, oh, it'll be great. We've got this fixture, then Australia, then South Africa. So for England, I think they had Tonga first, and for mm. Scotland, they were starting with us, and then South Africa. But um, No, sorry, Scotland had Tonga before as well, I think. Yeah. Um, in both cases, I thought, this is actually quite insulting. You know, like, I consider us to be pretty on par with South Africa when we play them. You know, our record against them is really good over the last 10 years. Um, Probably about 50-50, if not a little bit more in favour to us. You know, we seem to stack up pretty well against them. And for me, my benchmark generally in a rugby championship is I'm not expecting us to beat New Zealand because, you know, history has shown that we don't do that recently, but I would like to at least get parity with South Africa. And, yeah, to hear these nations really just sort of swat us away as if okay yeah we'll we'll, we'll get that done and mm. then we'll prepare for the test that's the insult and yeah i mean the, the challenge is we, we didn't go any way to disproving that you know yeah. over the last two weeks it's a bit of pill to swallow mate and I, yeah you're right i i 21 years ago i was in london i lived in london for a year it's 2000 so you can imagine living in england an australian living in england was a great time just won a world cup <laughs> rugby just won the cricket yeah. olympics is on our best ever olympics um as it usually is for whoever hosts the olympics but you know so the, it was a golden era right 
And I remember having a conversation at a dinner with a, with a friend of my cousins, and he's an English guy. And man, if you just listened, he was basically just telling me how good we were at everything. And just like, oh, he was just trying. He was like, Eels, you're so good. Keffer, you can't do anything with him. Larkham's a magician. Then he was switched to rugby. Steve Waugh, you go. And look, you know, it was all good. But I, I sort of look back at that time and think, did we as a country in some of our sports, especially rugby, did we, did that happen throughout and we just get completely complacent and lose our way because we sort of did believe in our, our own hype a bit from what people were saying. And it's sort of one thing, you know, look, I'm, I'm definitely at that mindset of, I, I, I desperately want us to try and get back to where we were 20, 25 years ago. Um, probably maybe I'm going to, this is going to be the hill I'll die on for the rest of my life with, with rugby, but I believe we can. And the reason I believe that is because for, for 70, 80 years, we were pretty much where we are now. We were about six or seventh in terms of like teams would regularly beat, you know, lose a lot of games to Australia, South Africa, you know, obviously South Africa were out in the wilderness for a few decades, but, but, you know, you go back in history and, 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 and I liken where we are now to where we were in the mid seventies when um, I think we lost to Tonga. Um, we'd, we'd lost a home series to, I think, three games, home series to South Africa. Um, we, we'd lost the Lions, um, you know, a, a streak, losing streak maintained against the Kiwis. And then something switches and something happens. And by the late 70s, early 80s, Australian rugby becomes a powerhouse. And for a good 20, 25 years, until about, you know, when we last when it, uh, lost the... the what last held the Bledisloe 2002 for a good 20 years, we achieved parity with the all blacks and not just for a couple of years, but for a pretty sustained period. And so for me, it's that's proof that it can be done. And so all this discussion of that, I've, and I've challenged people on Twitter and probably in our own groups around, I don't think it, I think it's a cop out for us to say that we can't be as good as New Zealand because we have done it before. And I don't think it was by chance. Like I think there was something in the design, in the way that our, our, our code was structured. And we've lost that somehow. And we, you know, we had dominance over pretty much all the Northern Hemisphere for a while there, and now we've lost that. And so for me, my aim, and I would like to think that this ambition is not just the players, but the, the administrators, is that should be our ambition, is to try and be the best team or the best top three team in the world for a sustained period but I don't think we're going to do that the way we're doing it now, which is sort of feels like they're, they're, they're fumbling around looking for a quick solution, looking for what can we do with our super rugby system to, you know, try and make it good. So everyone will stay. How can we get the best team together? Well, let's grab players from here and there. And, you know, because it's been done, it feels like it's been done pretty rushed and perhaps not with a sort of a real clear strategy. Then you have these mishaps where you suddenly get to, England and you, you know guys can't make it on the plane you're suddenly calling up you know journeyman like Ollie Hoskins which is great yeah. for Ollie you know you feel great for him but you know geez like I don't know you tell me how many what other tight heads would you have put ahead of him if they were available if we've been able to you know clear the clear the bench from sort of players from, from Australia well I mean, for me personally, Pony Farmer has been in the squad for yep. nearly two full years and hasn't had a cap yet, but, you know, he would be a pretty worthy call-up. And then on top of that, Harry Johnson-Holmes, who yeah. owned a test oh. um, 
I think, off the bench against South Africa uh, in 2019 before the World Cup, just to see if he'd be useful. I mean, to me, a player of his calibre that can play loose and tight racks up at least 10 carries and um, tackles a game. Kind of beggared belief as to why he wasn't in the squad to begin with. Um, and, and then even, and this is an interesting one, but we chose not to take Scott Co or Cameron Orr, two loose heads that have been in the team. Yep. And, you know, we take either of those and then suddenly Slippers playing starting tight head and, you know, Tom Robertson can be the reserve tight head because either Orr or Co is playing mm-hmm. loose head. So to me, there were so many avoidable situations in which we could have, um, you know, not play at Hoskins. But a credit to Hoskins because he did a good job coming on and it's awesome reward for someone that's toiled away. But it's definitely a selection based on, you know, uh, circumstance rather than, you know, genuinely deserving it and earning which you know mm. sounds mean to say but unfortunately it's just the truth of the setup i feel like he'd be the first one of the first people to admit that and he sort of almost did in a lot of his um you know press that he did uh yeah. i think you know everyone loves that idea of yeah you know how good is it for him but for me yeah been been a little more um I don't know, maybe it's negative but i'm trying to I'd call it pragmatic to me, that's not the the sign. That's not the mark of a really strong nation, a rugby nation, when you're having to call upon guys that are not even on the national radar, but just happen to be um, in the country you're playing at that that week, and you know they're suddenly thrust into the you know the, the training squad. Um, and I don't know if you know they're sort of looking at that as a sort of a well, that's perhaps what we might have to do is to start sort of you know using guys that have been. That's my other bugbear is that they're looking at the foreign option being an option because players are getting more game time in the English Premier League or in France or um, or maybe in Japan. And it's like, well, well, hang on. If the issue is they're not getting enough game time at home, let's make more game time at home. Let's create games. Let's, yeah. you know, like if, if next year there isn't an Australia A tour, I really can't see how we can be getting enough depth and enough game prep time for all the other guys before the World Cup. And I actually think that will be a, a, a massive disadvantage. Um, because let me ask you this. Do you think it would have been different if we hadn't called upon a lot of the, the, the foreign players and we'd stuck with our original squad from the start of the year against the French team and guys like Harry Wilson went on tour, um, Lolaseo basically just, they just keep him in there and say, mate, you've got to, you've just got to find a way to figure it out until, until O'Connor can come back and, and more or less sort of stuck with players rather than um, bringing in the, the, the sort of European or the foreign based players that they did. I think it nearly depended on how much time they had with a squad. So for, for Quaid and Karebi, um, they were two that, they had had a bit of time with the squad first and had played with the majority of these players before. Mm. So when they came in, it didn't seem like as drastic a change, especially someone like Karevi, who was still in that 2019 World Cup squad and, you know, had played with the majority of the guys in and around him. So I, I didn't mind his inclusion so much. Quaid, I was really against that at the start. I thought, you know, persevere with Noah. Um, we had this in the last World Cup cycle. Quite Cooper got 14 tests between 2016 and 2019, but then didn't get taken to the World Cup. He was looked at as, you know, the answer to Foley 
Foley played 41 of those possible 45 tests, but then wasn't our starting 10 at the World Cup. Like we've had this issue already. Mm-hmm. And so to me, the, the easiest solution was, hey, we've got a young guy who's sitting at around 10 caps. Let's get him in there, get some time in the saddle so that when the time comes, we've actually got someone that's ready and experienced. So do I think the results would have been any different? Mm-hmm. Probably not. I mean, the, the game against Scotland and Wales was so close. Maybe there was enough to sneak a win. But I think long-term, would it have been better? Yes, because, you know, we're getting the same results, but we're getting players that are actually sticking together and playing together. And, I mean, when we get to the time, there's so many numbers and stats that I'm keen to pull from because it, it really is staggering some of the things we've done over the years. And I, I guess some of the things I'm hoping Rennie learns from. Well, let's talk about that. So before we had this chat, um, Mitch, and you are the, the rugby pod. I think you are one of the rugby pod rain men that going around. Like you, obviously, mathematics is your thing, but you, 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 you are you love the stats. And I think, um, again, it's what I always always enjoy about the work that you put into the what you do is you, you'll you'll often go to the trouble of of, of putting together um, things just like caps, but you know the, the things that sort of people don't kind of often sort of discuss and look at. Um, when teams lineups get announced, but you've done a little bit of work on, um, you know, the analysis of, of the, basically the Wallaby selection. So you've sent that through to me and I am looking at the document and sorry for anyone listening. You can't sort of view this. Perhaps there'll be, you, you may share some little snippets of this in your, in your, um, on social media. Is that something you might do? Yeah, yeah definitely. The, um, the table towards around page 15 or so of the document, I think with the, um, overall games used. So I think that's probably the most alarming part of it. What are, what are the, what are the stats that stand out for you? So I guess sort of what we're looking at is this is a, this is looking at how many Wallabies or how many new players and, and the turnover of players in the Wallaby setup over the last, um, you know, three or four years. Yeah. So this is a document that I made um, just before the 2019 rugby world cup. Mm-hmm. Because the squad got announced, and I remember looking at it thinking, oh, I don't think this group of players has actually played that much together. And I was curious to see how much of it was just sort of a slight dash of players, Shepard brought in at the last minute in the hopes of saving it, and how much was sort of pre-planned and, and made sense. Because I wasn't filled with a lot of enthusiasm about the squad, and as we saw at the World Cup, we didn't really have a click. Um, and I think a large chunk of it is down to the, the breakup. Um, so looking at the 2016 to 2019 sort of time span, we were able to fit in 45 test matches in that time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from that, you'd like to think that the players making a World Cup squad are playing the majority of those tests. Um, only 10 players played three quarters, not even three quarters, two thirds. Only 10 players played two thirds of those, so 30 games or more. Um, and the most alarming thing, in that time we used 80 different test players. Yeah, like 80 different players and looking at those I was like there's, there's so many players like there's not even that many opportunities what did we do or how do we use them from that 80 35 players played less than five games Yeah, and to me that's such a waste Yeah, I think the most disappointing thing looking at this um, breakdown was seeing how many players did we just use because either one we didn't take a big enough squad somewhere and so we were left shorthanded. Two, we had poor succession planning with players that retired or got injured and didn't have someone that could step up naturally to fill the role. Or additionally, 
how many players did Checker just put in for a game just to see what they could do? Turns out he didn't like them and then threw them away. Like, I, I got to feel amazing. like it's the third option. And, I, and the reason I say that is, and I think at the time, and, you know, this is something I have been looking at because this is something I, I look at in the documentary around, um, I guess, our player pathway and our, our retention. And Checker definitely, uh, there's an interview somewhere where he talks about having to try to sort of see which players fit well. And the obvious the obvious thing is, is if you've got four or five teams, super rugby teams, and and I don't know, you know, whether the dynamics of, of him and those coaches was not that he would be able to get them to make selections that would, you know, befit him. But it did feel at times like he was using Wallaby games as just ways to sort of test out combinations, which to me just is... Again, it's a sign that we're not playing enough games because, you know, in, in England, you know, Marcus Smith has basically come in and everyone's raging about him for, you know, well, okay, three, three, four caps or whatever he's got. And he's been playing for Harlequins for almost, what, the last three seasons? Um, like there is so much game time that he's had and there's so much ample, ample opportunity to have seen him play and in some cases play with other, you know, time there were a few English players um, in, 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 in the Harlequin setup. And, and, and that sort of just, again, it's, it's something that I feel that that's something that we can fix, but we have to fix because you can't have guys, you can't have guys sort of getting a, I, I just, I just don't think you can have a, have a wallaby debut that is so the coaches can see if you're going to fit. If you don't know guys aren't, clicking by the time they're they're putting a wallaby jersey on then you know that that it may not i'm not having a go at the players that, that get their, their 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 debut or the coaches have to force that decision but that's a problem with the system in which we've got set up and, and to me that's the biggest issue and marcus smith the example there i think was best summed up with um ando from pick and drive when he mm-hmm. said that you know marcus smith has played around 100 professional games just by the virtue of the premiership having, you know, 12 teams, you play everyone home and away. There's 22 possible games each year. Yep. Throwing the Heineken Cup, or I'm not sure if it's still called that now, but, um, you know, there's anywhere from eight to 10 games as well. And if you're in a good team, you're making the finals. So yep. there's 30 games. You're potentially playing two sets of finals. Like that's so much more experience, but also high quality experience against a range of teams. It, it really does set those players up. I think to handle so many different situations. Marcus Smith is ten years older than sorry, ten years, ten months older than Noah Lolasio. He's mm. smaller than him by height, and I'd I'd actually fancy he's probably heavy. I think he's probably about the same size. But again, it's sort of people would go, "Oh, well, Noah Lolasio, he's um, yeah, he's he's young, he's a junior. We got to bring him in." You know, he needs time to get there. He's got to put on some weight. It's like, well, Marcus Smith, he's the same age. He's practically yeah. the same size. He's a similar type of player, I think. Like, to me, there is a clear-cut comparison you can make between two players, one that's coming through an English system that seems to be working and making guys ready for international rugby at a young age, and another that is not preparing them. And then when they go up against the All Blacks, which admittedly is a pretty tough team to play um, two or three times in a row. 
Um, but then they're, you know, they're not leaving them there and they're not like, you know, giving them that, that chance to sort of sit in the saddle. But, you know, to me, that is a, those two players. And that's what stuck out for me this year when I've been, I guess, following well, the CEO and I was hoping that he would, you know, have a year, real year to kind of, I, I, I was hoping this wouldn't be the year that would make him, but this would be the year that would really show his promise. And we just haven't seen enough of it. That's probably one of the, the big issues looking at them is just how much time do we actually afford to him? And, you know, he, he played nine tests um, in the last two years, which mm. isn't terrible. Um, I think there was seven starts out of the lot, but when you consider that, I think three or four of them were against New Zealand, just getting absolutely thumped. Um, some of them were against a, a pretty young and experienced French side. It's a very different cable of fish. And given he had a bit of time out injured for the Brumbies, he's only probably racked up somewhere around 15 or maybe 20 Super Rugby caps. Yeah. You know, and, and if that's your starting ball of his fly half, it, it just isn't enough experience. And I just, I keep, whenever we mention Marcus Smith and Noel Lutz here, all the um, Australians listening will probably be thinking about compare the pair, same income, same super contribution ad that is going around for the super funds. But mm. yeah, to me, it, it really is um, nearly a missed opportunity to have used some of these players and to just really embed, you know, players that we know we're going to be calling on in the future. You've, I think, struck upon something, which is obviously there's a money factor and we can't, you know, hide the fact that fact that, you know, guys are being well looked after and I'm sure that's helping them play play better rugby. You know, the motivation to play for a team like Harlequins and to try and make the England team is massive, you know, when you can get 25,000 pounds per game for England. That's crazy. Um, yes. Versus a team, uh, a, a player, you know, in Australia who's on a couple hundred thousand a year and, yeah, might get a Wallaby match payment, but it's just, it's nowhere near in that same ballpark and you know we are dealing now with professional players who are professional pretty much from an early age um you know they know that that's their pathway they know that's what they're, they're aiming for and i imagine many of them at 1920 probably now have a bit of a career path mapped out you know it may be that they'll try and make it and if they haven't made it by sort of age 24 25 then they they look at their overseas options and you know, I, I think that's sort of something again. That's I, I, that that's my fear this year is that we've got a lot of young players and guys like Harry Wilson. I keep bringing him up, and I know he's a you know, big fan. Of, you're a big fan of his, but you know, I love Harry Wilson. I really love watching him. And yes, he needs to grow. Yes, he needs to develop. But boy, oh boy, he would have he would have really developed playing against England at Twickenham or playing in that game tonight against Wales out against with sixty eight thousand people. In Cardiff, like to me, that is worth more than doing some extra um, bench work and and shuttle runs back in Queensland. No, absolutely. And uh, to throw onto that, Fraser McBride, who was the next seven in yep. line. Um, and again, we we sort of harken back to the squad um, makeup and how that sort of uh, fractured with the Japanese players. I think with that squad, Dave Rennie was putting all his eggs in the basket of having those Japanese players and knowing that if anything happened, Hooper, because um, clearly he's not going to arrest him if he doesn't have to, but if anything happened to him, Sean McMahon would be your seven and you know he's played 27 or 28 tests, so you know he's a really handy replacement. But that all went out the window. And that, that to me, 
is how we got in the position of having players like Duncan Payawa and Colby Feinger and Holly Hoskins in the squad. Players that are great, you know, good club players to have, um, have contributed a lot to Australian rugby, particularly yeah. Colby Feinger, I thought, is, is a really, you know, great workman-like player. But the, to me, and I think to most Australian fans, they're not at Wallaby level. And we've got players that are, and that that to me is the, the biggest shame. And it's what I'm hoping we sort of settle on because with the World Cup coming up and maybe with COVID, it extends a little bit, but you'd expect to take somewhere around 31 to 33 players. Um, at the moment, Dave Rennie's used 53 players. Mm. So to me, that's probably as much as I'd like, say for a few players might have a breakout season like the, Surely I see Bunavalu or maybe Dave Parecchio, Alex Marfi, if we're really getting desperate for the hookers. But I think we're right around that area of we should know what our squad's going to look like now. Let's get as many tests as possible into these players. And I guess for you, Matt, have you seen enough from the current squad that we could pick 31 players that we could just drill tests into for the next two years and happy to take those to France? Yeah, I think I have. Like, I, I think you could probably name it. I don't know what the squad would be. Is it, 30, is it 35, 40 players that they take to a World Cup? Um, I, I think you could name that 40 players now. And the rest, if they're good enough, great. But what's critical for me, and I've said this to you guys and I'll, I'll continue to say it, uh, is at the end of Super Rugby Pacific next year, anyone that's not playing for the Wallabies in that match day 23 needs to be playing either for Australia A or in some other follow-up competition, whether it's NRC or it's even just some form of, I don't know, like a four, a four match um, into, into Australian competition. Because if the, if you just sending them back to shoot shield or um, hospital cup, it's just not good enough. They're too good for that level. And then they're not getting, they're not getting that that game time with other players. So I'm just uh, I'm just going to pour a little another little bit of scotch. Um, mate, this is I don't know if it's the scotch or if it's the uh, sorry, sorry it's not the whiskey. I don't know if it's the whiskey or the conversation rev, but this is working. I'm feeling a lot better already. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. <laughs> I think I'm after this after every Wallaby uh, Wallaby Wallaby patch. Just have the the debrief and whiskey. Um, I don't know if I've been going direct enough. Is there something you want me to navigate more towards or a spot you want the conversation to end up more at or are you happy with Man, the, we're, We are spitballing, buddy. I think, yeah. I mean, it's funny. We, we, you know, you have really good structured podcasts and I know the guys from Pick and Drive and other ones. Um, rugby record, r- report card, I think, wing it. And I think I, I love that. Yeah. I'm Today is we're winging it because I think nice. it's, there's just so there's there's so much. Perhaps we're playing like the Wallabies often love to play, which yeah. is just you know running running the ball out of their um out of their twenty two and seeing what happens. Let let's just put the Wallabies aside because I know everyone's probably everyone's probably still kind of thinking about you know this that and the other. Um, let's just talk about some of the other games because you know I I am speaking to you fresh off watching um, France versus New Zealand, and prior to that. Probably the Wallabies, um, England versus South Africa, and to me both were just 
blockbuster games like that like you know say what you will about cards and the tmos and all that sort of stuff i still think rugby is a fantastic product and i think all of those games especially those two games showed what a what a showpiece it, it, it actually is um what, what did you like what did you pick out of that we don't need to break down those games but like, what do you take away from watching those games and, and what perhaps watching those teams I think the first thing, with, we'll just go England, uh, South Africa first. With that fixture, it just looked like a test match from the outset. There was just this real tenacity between both teams that they really were desperate to sort of avenge something. So for England, I guess it was the World Cup final. And for South Africa, it's been the, the Rassi Erasmus saga, just really yes. trying to get the, the upper hand in some way over the narrative and you know, credit to England. They came out all guns blazing and looked really strong. That first 20 minutes, I thought, they're going to do what they did to New Zealand in the World Cup semi and just blow them out the gates and then defend, defend, defend. And yeah. they kind of did. You know, they gave away a lot of penalties, but that, that's kind of test match rugby is you've got to be smart. You've got to know when to give away penalties and when you can afford to. And I think to England's credit, that's something that they do really well and it's something New Zealand do really well. I think they're probably the two best in the world at knowing, okay, well, we're actually in a good enough position. I'm going to give away a penalty here because they're either in a position where if they take the three, we can bounce back with a try or we've got a big enough lead that it doesn't really matter at this point. Rather, get that over um, and done with and then turn the pressure over onto their end with a territory game. So... England, England, South Africa. It was the it was the Boer War twenty twenty one. It was, yep. I mean, I don't know. It, it looked exciting. It wouldn't have been electric being there, but I think what what I loved about that was really watching a game play out. Like England went out, I think, trying to sort of knock them out of the park early because I think they knew they had to get ahead. And and South Africa, to their credit, as they have done quite a few times this year, they've just ground their way back. Say what you will about their 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 strategies their their kicking um but it 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 works and for me you know people people kind of like like i I, i'll be honest i didn't think lions series was 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 that exciting but ever since that series i've enjoyed watching teams play against south africa because everyone's now trying to beat them out there at their own game or unpick the way they play and rattle them and um, that that for me is exciting. It's 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 like you know it is watching a game of chess between two teams, and and then every so often South Africa just kind of throws caution to the wind, and you know they un- unleash their their back three. Uh, and then of course you know my 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 hero of twenty twenty one is still Fran Stone, the uh, the, <sighs> the, the, the the thirty yeah. the something um, uh, old man quote unquote who just comes on and can still kick it you know, 80 metres if you had to. Um, it's just, it's a joy to watch. He really is just setting the standard for dad bod, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, we've seen it in cinema. We've seen all these guys who, you know, don't have the archetypal, um, you know, alpha male physique. And, yeah. you know, they've got humour or they've got some other charm that, you know, lets them get away with things. And you see Fran Stane, it genuinely looks like if he was next to Petra Stuplessy, you'd be hard to tell who's who other than the hair. You know, like he. Oh, you, 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 have... you think they're two two retired players? They'd be like, oh yeah, they, yeah. They've, they've just sort of given hang up the boots a couple of seasons ago. But you know and, what it is, and I, and I think there's something in in this aspect of rugby still, even in the professional era, is 
game smarts, game management, knowledge, like being an on-field, not even an on-field general. It's almost like a uh, an on-field uh, intelligence specialist where you just understand the game. You know where it's the next play is going to be. And I recall hearing someone talk about George Smith in this regard in that, you know, the secret to George Smith was not that he just sort of was this I mean, he was a you know great athlete, but it wasn't the fact that he was just this unbelievable specimen. But the reason he played till a fairly late age, like I think he retired at 38 or 39, is that he just knew the game of rugby. He knew where the next breakdown was going to be. And he was just able to conserve his energy. And um, and I feel like Franz Stein's a bit like that. Like as a fullback, he really needs to know where the game's going to be. But he is. He's always there. He's always in the right position. Um, you know, he can still move a yard. He's still got a yard of pace. He can still get past players. But again, even in contact, he knows that you've got to move into contact and move at the last minute and sort of change your pace. Like, even if he doesn't have the pace, he knows those skills. And that's that's just still enough for him to be able to get through and look like he belongs there. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because to me, I think the closest we've got to that at the moment is Andrew Callaway. I see massive shades of just, this isn't just an athlete. It's someone that's got a rugby brain and they know where to be. They know what to do. Um, They nearly see the game in four dimensions. It seems like they just have this real uncanny ability to know Mm. exactly where the ball's going to pop up. And I remember talking to one of my old coaches who was a previous um, Oz schoolboys coach and, you know, a bit of a talent scout, um, you know, over the last sort of 20, 30 years. And for the longest time, he'd say in all his schoolboys tracking, there's been no one that reads the game better than Drew Mitchell. Yep. And that, you know, through all these players he'd seen backs, forwards, he just, he got it. And Callaway is a year or two younger than me. And I remember, you know, graduating and talking to the same coach a few years later. And he said, yeah, look, we've had a few stars come through, but Callaway's got that same skill. And just hearing um, France Saint get mentioned, Mm. I'd love that, you know, firstly, that, you know, you can sort of getting around at that age and in that condition performing so well. But on top of that, that we might sort of just unearth this similar talent. He doesn't have the same kicking or anything like that. But this similar ability for a player who can play a bit across the back line and has this real knack for reading exactly what the play is going to look like. Because I think we've got great athletes but it's probably the difference between someone like him and Tom Banks. Tom Banks is a great athlete who's probably not got a rugby brain. Yeah. Callaway to me is, is a great athlete, but he's got that, he knows exactly where to be. And to bring you back to your point, the point you made about Rennie, right? If Dave Rennie now at the end of 2021, two years into a Wallaby coaching career, if he doesn't have enough information to know who he can select and who he needs for the World Cup, I just don't know what else he can do or what else can be done for him to do anything different, you know? And I guess this is one of my, you know, I know sort of in Rennie we trust is a bit of a catch cry in, in the system. Can we trust is my catch cry? Because if you go back since Rod McQueen and look at, you know, Eddie Jones after him, Knuckles, uh, Robbie Deans, uh, Ewan McKenzie, Checker, and now Rennie, all of those coaches were pretty good coaches when they got the gig. They're like, they've proven themselves elsewhere, somewhere. Like Checker, it's still the only coach to have won Super Rugby and a, 
um, a European Cup. And, uh, you know, Dean's the best coach that New Zealand had at the time. Maybe um, Scott Robertson has, has overtaken him with the, the most number of Super Rugby titles. Like, you know, Mackenzie, I think one of the best coaches Australian had in terms of knew the system inside out, was a World Cup winner himself, was part of Rob McQueen's coaching setup, like perfect, one with the Reds. Um, all of those coaches were good, yet all of them had pretty much the same or worse record as things progressed. So my my kind of question to people that have faith in Dave Rennie is, what do they think has changed in terms of our system that allows Dave Rennie to be that that coach that could take us all the way? And, and that's going to be the most interesting thing to analyse. But for me, what I really like about what he's done is he's picked mostly a squad that he thinks he can build around. And he, he, from the very outset, said that he wanted his his players to have this dark edge about them, which I thought was an interesting line at the time. But he, he also wants them to be able to play smart rugby. And I think what we've seen is while the results have sort of ebbed and flowed, I think the amount of penalties that are sort of going against us, especially for the players that we have in the system for a long time, mm. obviously that's bound to change if we have to make changes and bring players in. But we're making smarter decisions so much more often than what we we're doing before. Yeah. And our defense is incredibly better than what it was before. Yep. So to me, they're two massive things that I think we can sort of hang our hats on of if you're not bought into it yet or sold on it yet, there's, there's you know, there's good reason for that. But we're actually in a pretty nice position in terms of those two things. I think all championship teams obviously have a good defense. So if we can build on that, that's great. It's really just going to be about getting the best players for the position because at the moment, I think we're more often than not picking the best team available. Mm. Um, the, the two things that we need to work on is, again, we're going back to it. Once we know what our um, selection policy is, then we just make sure we've got the best available players at all times. So if that means you know someone like Skelton isn't available, great. I'm happy to cut ties with Skelton if the policy says he's not included, because if he's not coming back to Waratahs, I don't care about them. Mm. But it's this awkward area at the moment where we're still attached to players. And so for me, I think our young talent at the moment is probably matched only by France. Um, But I'm really excited. We could name a really formidable 23 of players that are 25 and under. Mm. And a lot of them are already test capped. So that's a really good sign. So for people that are sort of on the fence about this team, we're just sort of working out what the best team looks like. Yep. Um, and I think we're closer each day. Let's talk about the front France because, you know, Viva la France. I mean, I'm, I'm drinking whiskey now. I imagine there are barrels of wine getting emptied out in, in Paris tonight. Um, the French beat New Zealand for the first time since 2009, I believe. Um, just going off what the commentators said, uh, I think it was the first win in Paris since 1973, something like that. So, you know, it was a, a joyous moment for them. And let's face it, as Aussies, we just must be happy that someone someone has managed to humble the, the All Blacks twice in a row. We, you know, we can talk about Ireland from last week. But, but how many, let me ask you this, how many players in that French 23 tonight 
were uh, in the three test series against Australia earlier in the year. Well, that's the thing. Like, there was actually a surprising amount. And, and granted that a few of them were on the bench, yeah. so it does make it slightly different. Um, there, there were actually still a surprising amount. So some of the ones that stood out, um, obviously Cameron Walkie, he yeah. has been unreal for them. And playing in a different set of um, you know, positions, really, because he was used as a, a loose forward um, throughout that tour, but yeah. he's slotted in in that sort of enforcer role as a tight head lock, and it's looked really good for them. Um, he looks all over. Watching so it, he stood out, and I, I recognize him straight away because I was like, he's he's one of those second row, rare second rower who's not just a big guy, but gets around and almost moves around like a loose yeah. forward. And, um, and, and that fits in so well with the French, you know, way of sort of wanting to move the ball and have big men. You know, Intermac is obviously, you know, a, a critical part. DuPont is the, you know, all French hopes are on his shoulders. But, you know, I guess the question is, is have the French done what other countries perhaps haven't done or perhaps what we haven't done, which is that they actually had a team at the start of the year that they, they were happy with and they sort of stuck with some selections or did they just bring in quite a lot of players in the last couple of weeks, and I'm just sort of reading into it. Well, no, I really like that point because what I think they did is they started with a a weakened squad that went to Australia. Um, and some of those players have had some game time in the Six Nations before that, but otherwise, you know, gave a lot of minutes to some young players. Uh, they saw which ones could mix it with test quality, uh, you know, rugby matches. And then the team they've got now is just those young guys added in with all the experience. Mm. So, you know, I think seven of the forwards that played that match did tour Australia. Five of the backs that played that match and started that match yeah. to Australia. So, you know, there is some sort of mixture there. The, the thing that separates is while they picked a younger side and added to it, we, we, we kind of went backwards. We picked a young side, we added to it for the rugby championship, but then we took away from it going overseas. Yeah. So as you asked before about whether that was a backward step, it kind of shows that it was. Had we put a bit more faith in some of those players, maybe we see a little bit more of those um, you know, successes that we had mm. as long as we keep those players that you know are sort of locked into that team. And the example that sticks out most, obviously Simon Karevi, nominated World Player of the Year after five games, he is a game-breaker. Mm. And we saw Hunter Basami's first really solid game at um, 12 this weekend. Part of the reason why that was his first solid game is he's only played six games as an inside centre this year, despite there being 14 tests and he's been available for the majority. Yeah. You know, we we persisted with Tamua to start with. Then, you know, we rushed Karevi straight and couldn't get the jersey back. Um, it's not really a surprise that someone so young and new to the test scene. Yeah isn't a world better week in week out but we saw you know today he can be a world better he he was remarkable but here's the thing if you've got Paisami I mean I, I agree I think Paisami does some some odd things or, or he doesn't do odd things he does things that don't sometimes come off but gee he hits hard gee he, he runs hard and you know I think he works well around around players that he's sort of comfortable with if he and Jock are a lock for the Reds for the next two years. If you're if you're Dave Rennie, you're looking at it going, do I am I choosing those two guys as a as a as a unit, 
or am I just choosing Paisami as the guy who is a really good player and is, you know, really working well with Jock? Or do I just keep bringing in Karevi, um, who's not there for half the year, but we all know he's world-class. And you're right. Like he has definitely proven that he's probably the best player in that position in uh, the Australian players. But long-term, does that bite us if we go with him and we hold back the opportunity to develop and exploit what could be a really good partnership between um, James O'Connor and, and Hunter Bosami? And, and this will be the bit that becomes most interesting is because it comes down to a mixture of cohesion versus skill. Because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, the mighty second 15 for Padua might have played you know, for six years straight, but they're still going to be able to mix it with, you know, any professional team because of the skill difference. But for a team like the Reds, oh, I think Pasami's nearly at a point where the cohesion could um, make enough of a statement or make enough mm. of a case for him to start. But as you said, Karevi, not only is he the best inside centre in Australia, I think he's the best inside centre in the world. To me, if he's available, you pick him. It's much the same as, um, you know, if, if we got to the point where Liam Wright and Harry Wilson were the two best sixes and eights in Australia mm. and they were the starting six and eight for the Wallabies, that'd be great. But I wouldn't be rushing McWright in just to complete the set. Like, yeah. Hooper is still such a phenomenal athlete. So, to me, um, Simon Crabby does keep starting. Mm. He mm. is the person we sort of hang the, the hat on or the hopes on because he's just such a ridiculous game-breaker. But it's nice to see what Hunter Paisami can do, because I, I, th- I don't know if Karevi's going to be available. Yeah, I think I think that sort of the difference... So this is the thing about, you know, trying to put combinations together. You look at a, te- at a, at a, at a rugby 15, and there are certain combinations that may not matter so much. Like so, sometimes I think the wingers are... You know, I wouldn't say they're superfluous, but there's, sometimes you can interchange wingers, because they're... They're on the sides, right? They're the last man in a in a line to receive the ball, and you know the point of difference is whether or not they are, yeah, sort of multifaceted or whether they're just a really hard ball runner. Whereas that ten twelve combination is pretty crucial, and um, it's funny even tonight because I haven't seen um, much of him. I was trying to remember the player, the, the Welsh um, twelve, um, Holo. He had some couple of glaring defensive errors and i think, I think that he that was who how bill who bill stepped um but like he plays cardiff he's with dan beggar who plays in you know uk how many games did they play together how much what's their sort of because like you know i think that the reason that channel is so important is you look at offset pieces especially lineouts. that's where you can kind of make an impact and if you've got two guys that really know each other know where they're standing Know that they've got to, they've got back rows that can cover. It, it makes a massive difference, and and I think that sort of the you know the cohesion argument I think sort of really plays when you look at critical parts of a rugby team. And like the front row might be another, um, you know, possibly even a fullback and winger. And, and I don't know. I've never really looked at it to that degree, but that to me appears to be where, you know, it's really critical because you know, at the end of the day, like. Some of the, I mean, you know, let's talk about Ireland and New Zealand last week. How many Leinster players were in that Irish team? It was pretty nuts. It was like, I think seven out of their eight forwards were Leinster. And I don't know how many backs were were Leinster, but it was, you know, basically a Leinster team with a few 
a few a few mixed sorts um, knocking over the All Blacks. That's such an important aspect because with the mention of Halaholo, he's actually played more games with Bowden Barrett as his fly half than he has with um, Dan Bigger, <laughs> right. just from all that time together at the Hurricanes. Yeah. So it's it does make a big difference, just that um, familiarity. And I think it's, you know, this is the first time we've seen O'Connor and Paisami start consistently together. Mm. Um, one of the things that I've kind of liked the idea of is uh, people have been, you know, asking for McDermott to start alongside them, you know, really complete that Reds mm. sort of interconnection because you get a 9, 10 and 12 that have played, what, 15 Super Rugby games this year on top of, you know, the tests. Yeah that does make a big difference to how they would approach, you know, um, the intricacies of a set play, you know, when they come off the line, all those players know where they're going to be because they've had literally a full year of trainings and matches to test that. Um, so I, I, I do agree with that. And I think for me, I've liked the idea of hearing, I think Brad Thorne's come out and said that he is looking at Patea uh, yeah. as a fullback. We do need to have a bit more, communication between um, the clubs and the the Wallaby setup to make sure that players firstly are getting game time if they're going to be looked at as a serious Wallabies option. But secondly, that, you know, ideally, if they're playing fullback for the, the Wallabies, they should be playing fullback for the club. So players like Reese Hodge, um, players like Hunter Paisami, they probably need to be playing the same position week in, week out you know, for their Super Rugby franchise so that when they get to the Wallabies arena, they're not wondering, okay, should I be stepping in a little bit more or am I in the right position? I know they're professional athletes, but it, it does make their job that bit easier mm. if they're a specialist in that one key position. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, this is going to be the question is, you know, next year, I think people, Australian rugby followers love, it's one of those joys of watching super rugby every week and you're like oh this guy's got to be playing for the wallabies this guy's got to be you know it's it's, it's always like you know we get so yeah. excited by the shiny new toy it's it, it feels that perhaps this year well this upcoming season will be a little more settled you'd think and if guys who have been playing for the wallabies in the last two years don't have great seasons then it'll be a major disappointment like i'd i'd like to think now that valentini you know aside from what happened tonight like he should be the, the benchmark of a back rower next year in Super Rugby. Um, you know, Nick White, um, even Jock, like they can't really be having off games. Like they should be firing and, and showing that they're, they're, they're the sort of, you know, the shining lights in those positions. And I think that's sort of critical. It's almost like more pressure now on some of those players because they really do have to prove that they should be in that position. I think the only position that still a bit of a question mark for me is, is probably still um, Hooker. Yeah, and Hulk is the one that this whole idea of having the uh, what are the, the centralization? Mm. I think that's where it comes into uh, the four because well, the Brumbies have had three different hookers play for the Wallabies just this season. Mm. You know, Flair Flyinger, Connell McInerney, and uh, Lockie Lonigan, they've all got at least, I think, at least three caps. Maybe McInerney's, no, McInerney's the one too. Yeah. Um, but you know, like they've accrued a lot of caps between them. That means that one of them each week won't be playing Super Rugby. Yeah, you know that, that to me is a massive issue if they're a genuine Wallabies option. So how come, you know, we're not moving heaven and earth to get one of them down to, you know, um, the force of the Reds as a you know backup or even starting option? Mm, mm. I think I think um, 
looking looking ahead, so you're you're obviously going to be following pretty closely the um, Super Rugby Pacific. What are you? I mean, what what are your sort of taking away from 2021 has been a, a really odd year in many ways from a rugby season perspective but it seems like i mean 2020 was probably the, <laughs> the the most oddest but things have started to settle now what are you sort of hoping to see from the australian rugby season next year and and you know let, let's talk about things that haven't been announced yet because there's always stuff that gets announced rugby australia will make an announcement i guarantee probably two weeks out from super rugby starting but what is what's something that you're hoping will will happen next year broadly in, in the, the Australian rugby um, setup? Yeah, um, so broadly, there's going to be eight teams make the finals yep. uh, for Super Rugby. I think we need at least three Aussie teams. And I think that's a very reasonable expectation. You know, yep. I think most people would presume that the five Kiwis get in. Um, that leaves three spaces. So there's five Aussie teams plus the Fiji and Drua and Moana Pacifica. Um, they're new teams. They've got some great players, but I think as a bare minimum, we should be getting three teams in there. I think less than that is a, a issue mm. that needs to be addressed very quickly and probably would show that we don't have the depth for five teams. Yeah. On top of that, I think we need at least um, at least one Australian team in the top four. You know, because I'll be in a knockout round, so hopefully we're in a position where that's likely. But, you know, how nice would it be just to get a Crusaders versus Brumbies final? Mm. You know, something like that. And, you know, I'm clearly a Reds fan, so I, right. I would want them there. But just to get some Aussie representative into the final to make, you know, Make you on the promise that we can mix it because I'd, I'd mate, I'd, 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 be, years... I'd be running, I'd be running to a convenience store and reading the paper to make sure I'm not stuck in back in the year 2001. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it, it's funny because I get so many comments from people saying, Oh, shame the Waratahs beat the Blues the other day. I'm like, What are you talking about? That's an Australian team. Like, of course, I want them to win. Yeah, like, yeah. because I'm a Queenslander, doesn't mean I hate the other super rugby franchises. Like, I, I want what's best for Australian rugby. So, to me, getting as many Aussie wins as possible mm. over non-Australian oppositions key. I think we can show that by getting three teams in the final and at least one in the semis. And if we got one in the final, that'd be great. But we are still a step off the Kiwis. Um, but broadly speaking, what I want, we've used 53 players this year. Um, I think nine or 10 of the players have come from overseas teams. Yeah, We need to decide really early on this is my biggest thing i think i've said it four times already this episode when depending on how often you've cut out my rubbish but um i, I think we need to settle on who can actually be a wallaby yeah that to me is the biggest thing we settle on that suddenly we know who's in the mix because i've loved seeing darcy swain burst onto the scene mm. i think matt phillip has been unreal for the wallabies this year i think isaac rodder is now clearly the best lock we have and this is all without mentioning Lucan Salakailoto, who's yeah. really capable lock, good blindside, but has had a lot of time off with um, the young family. If we decide that we don't select them, kind of happy that you know we've got these options here, but at the same time, Arnold and Skelton have been you know big bodies to include. Let's decide early on: are they actually in the picture? Mm. And if they are, our guys know what they've got to try and beat. They can keep tabs on them, and then, you know they've. They've got this external pressure as well. Yep. 
And if they don't know, then they're at least week in, week out saying, okay, great. Um, Reds versus Force. Salakaloto is just thinking, I need to assert complete dominance over Rotter to show that I'm a shoo-in for the team. Like, I, I do think that we know the majority of our Wallaby squad going forward. Mm, mm. Next year should be a perfect case. Get as many of those Wallaby players in Super Rugby Pacific as possible. And let's see how good they are against each other. So I'm I don't, I'm just looking at just quickly. I'm close to know if, how long Rory Arnold's contract with Toulouse lasts for because he signed with them in 2020. Was it a two-year contract? So, I, 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 or three? I thought it was two, but I, I haven't kept up to date with the contract for him. So, to me, that's that's like another thing of like, okay, if, if Dave Rennie comes back and presumably there will be Post analysis meetings with the board, everything, all that sort of stuff's going to now kick in like um, in the next month or so. If he says, Look, I want Rory Arnold, he's the guy, he's he stood up. And look, let's be honest, I thought he looked really good tonight. He did, in the last two weeks, yeah. he he helped disrupt the English set piece, certainly the lineouts. Like he, he, he looked like he was running the show. If he says, Look, I want Rory Arnold, he's critical. Sorry, Matt Phillip, everyone else, but you know, that's the way it is. If his contract is up at the end of this current Northern Hemisphere season, that has to be part of their plans to go, right, well, we've got to pay a bit more. We've got to get him back. He needs to be back playing yeah. rugby um, season, you know, Super Rugby Pacific 2023 um, in the lead up to the World Cup. And I think that's something that they'll have to try and target because, you know, and that's for me where they, they have to sort of make that decision. You're right, as we keep saying, they need to, be clear with their strategy but the strategy should should not preclude trying to get some of these guys back a year or two out from a world cup even if it costs more money i'd rather them decide to spend three four hundred thousand dollars extra to get them back if they've made that decision that that's our guy um and i think that's sort of kind of where we're at is that we we seem to be sort of still unsure as to who's the best fit for the position. But once you've made that decision, you know, like Samuel Karevi, and I know there was possibly other reasons he left and, but you know, in the end, and if you believe what you read in the press, you know, he, he, he was still on a, I think after Hooper, he was our, our most paid Wallaby. So the question was, is, you know, is he just a few hundred, a couple of hundred thousand dollars away from, you know, squaring up what he's getting in japan is that what it would take you know could that conversation be had with him um in the next contract because he's he's also i think coming to the end of his contract to the end of this uh next top uh top league um season in japan um and i don't know when sort of those announced i know there's a lot of contracts talk happening in it's like may to june that's like the massive window um uh, so it's sort of mid-year, which is like a major window when a lot of, especially Northern Hemisphere contract uh, player contracts get sorted. So I would be just getting our best I don't know, negotiator to try and get to those Japanese clubs and say, hey, look, we gave him a few tests for the Wallabies. He's now a World Rugby nominated player of the year. That's a massive marquee signing. That adds, you know, more dollars to the name, um, you know, keep him in your you know books or whatever but you know we need him for x number of games of super rugby pacific or we're keeping him for every single wallabies test like whatever it happens to be but there needs to be heaven and earth moved to get him in the team and for me 
that's Scott Johnson's key role. Mm. I know that his um his contract's you know, up as well. His contract's <laughs> but up. But I think so. he might have to sort of his own contract before he can sort out other people's contract. Well, he, here's the two things. Either he renews the contract and his whole just paycheck is just going towards getting Caribbean, or if he doesn't get the role, mm. give the job to some, you know, up-and-coming young um, business-savvy dude who's happy to take, you know, 500000 less than Scott Johnson's exorbitant fees and just put that all towards getting Karevi to play for the force. Mate, you and I, we'll, we'll like, do it, mate. We'll, I, I reckon I could find a bunch of people who are probably pretty clued into who which players are available and uh, we'll do it for like you know, a yeah. fraction of that. Um, I, I think the only problem with, with all of this and, you know, it's been discussed, actually there's some really good people who have written about this and I think kind of is is the whole club versus country dilemma and this has been running for a while and i think this is and it was fairly pointed out when all of this stuff was happening a few people were saying well welcome to samoa and fiji's world and it's true like this is this is the predicament that they have had to deal with for for over two decades is how do you convince clubs in france to release players outside of the the test window and and let's face it from the club's perspective release them for games that are quite meaningless because they'll They'll look at it from the point of view of, and I think this was the issue with um, Quade Cooper and Karevi is, is, and I don't know if many people were aware, but you know the, the Japanese competition has changed this last year. They're actually starting a lot earlier. They, they start like the first or second week of January. So if the clubs had let Quade Cooper and Sammy Karevi come on the spring tour, after COVID, after the quarantine in Japan, they probably wouldn't have been available to train again until almost like three or four weeks out from the start of the season. Um, so it, it's quite reasonable that they didn't want them to, I mean, you know, paying them quite a bit of money and and they're critical players. Yeah. It's quite reasonable from the club's perspective that, you know, they didn't want them, especially if they'd signed them in the knowledge. With that said, Quaid was always probably signed in the knowledge that he was still um, could qualify under the, the, the current or the old Gitto law. But I, I can kind of see where the clubs are coming from, and and that's sort of where my question is: is 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 did were were promises made, or was there sort of something you know classically Japanese field lost in translation between Rugby Australia's administrators and the Scott Johnsons and the clubs in Japan when they were discussing about using these players on the tour? And and that's something that needs to come out with a wash quickly. Is just we can't let that happen again. Mm. Um, you know, to have what two of our three best players pulled out from underneath us without really knowing, or you know, if we did know, then that needs to fall under Rennie a little bit more in terms of making sure we've got backups in the case that happens. But yeah, yeah look, for Quaid, if we don't select him again, I think he's had a remarkable 2021. I think that's added a lot of yen to his contracts. Good on him. Um, but, you know, we do have young fly-offs to develop. And we've got uh, James O'Connor to have that experience for the time being and Matt Tamur when he's not injured. Mm. Um, but Simon McGravy, he is just another level. We need to get him in. And to me, it's probably one of the things that I wanted to run through with you because mm. I think you've you've seen, you know, the, the quality of players over, you know, the last 20 years. And you can probably... I have a pretty good idea of you know who's in the best 23 we can name or in the best squad and then 
some players who are just making up the numbers. And and to me, we've used 54 players and half of them, you know, have been in there for you know seven or less games. A lot of them are just scraping through. Yeah. I'd be keen to run through some of them just you know, get your opinion on whether we need to see them again yep. or if they've had their loss. Yeah, look, let, let's do that. And we'll, and we'll probably bring it to a close after that. It's an interesting point you make. And I want to just touch on your last episode. And, and look, for anyone that's listening that doesn't listen to Rev's Rugby Fixation, I'm going to sound like Molly Meldrum here. Do yourself a favor, go and subscribe and listen back to the last few episodes leading into these spring internationals. Because you, you you got some guests from, you got a, an English guest, you spoke to um, a, a Welsh uh, rugby rider last week in the lead up or this week in the lead up to the game but go to go back to your english one so you interviewed jb from the um uh, egg chasers podcast and jb's you know he's, he's a bit of a, a colorful some would say divisive character but he knows his rugby like you can't you know you can't say he doesn't and it was interesting listening to jb chat to you because i suspect jb's from the same era of me in terms of his kind of rugby awareness and he mentioned to you graham bond as being like a really great player. And it was funny when he said that, because I was like, God, I haven't thought about Graham Bond. But yeah, I remember, mate, Graham Bond was a sensational player. Like he he did get, you know, going for the Wallabies, but not many. But he was a critical member of that Brumbies team. Like, you know, the, the, the team that sort of was, well, it was, you know, a fantastic team and they won a Super Rugby title. And Graham Bond, to me, sums up what Australian rugby was 20 years ago, which was a bit like our cricket team. We probably had an Australia A that could beat most international teams in cricket. And I think the same could be said at the time about the Wallaby second team, in in that there were guys like that who were just knocking on the door, itching for an opportunity. Um and, and and some got it, some got maybe one or two games, and then others, you know, just didn't crack it. But they were there. And, and you know, consequently, you go, and if I'm sure if you did your analysis that you've done of the last four years uh, or the lead up to the last World Cup around player turnovers, how many players have selected, like to hear you say 53 players have been chosen this year is quite something. I dare say go back to that time period and you wouldn't see the same turnover of players because the Wallaby team was settled, because our Super Rugby teams were very settled, and 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 you know, consequently, the British Lions came out in two thousand one, and this is what I think JB was touching upon, and and you know, they had, I think they lost to Australia A on that match. I'm, I don't remember the Brumbies beat them. I know they beat them in two thousand thirteen. But but that it was a tough slog for the Lions, even on the provincial touring um, aspect. But and I guess that's sort of what I've part of what my whole journey has been about is period in Australian rugby, it wasn't just about the Wallabies. It was about the pool of players that we had to call upon. And, you know, the Rod McQueens and eventually the Andrew Joneses were bringing on guys that were quite settled and quite seasoned. They weren't sort of doing what Checker has perhaps done and now Rennie, which is bringing on slightly young, unproven players and seeing if they can cut it or not. Yeah, and the talk of... That 2001 era, it, it's just chalk and cheese when you look at them. Because, yeah, you look at the, the whole 23s for the Brumby Spreads and Waratahs of that era, and there's just household names littered amongst them, household names on the benches mm. for those teams. We, we look at the teams now. You know, I mean, I teach at a state school, so it does add a different sort of level given the 
it's not quite as pronounced for rugby content, but we're really hard pressed in my classes naming more than, you know, Michael Cooper and they can name a handful of the All Blacks just because they're such, you know, massive sort of personalities or, you know, such freakish superstars, but no one knows who these people are that are playing. Mm. Whereas I think, you know, there's partially down to not winning much, but there's also down to not having that same depth of talent where you've got players that are international quality, not getting picked, you know, as we've sort of discussed this episode, there's nearly been the opposite. We've had a lot of players getting picked mm. that aren't test standard. And, and to me, that's, that's an issue because I know that we have 30 test quality players in Australia yeah. or that, you know, or that represent Australia. It's just the, the circumstances we find ourselves in where, you know, for whatever reason, they're not able to be selected or, you know, injured, unavailable for whatever reason. Yeah. And I look at the team and I think, I know that isn't the best or second best tight head prop or, um, you know, outside center that we've got. How are they making this team? Mm. And, you know, to me, that's something we're closing in on. I think we're dangerously close to getting that right. But I do think it's a make or break moment over the next year as to, you know, how much we actually yeah. get those players minutes together. Let, let's run through the list here. I'm curious to know where, what, um, what numbers you're, or what names you're, you're wanting to look at. And, and I'm so going to pour another, I'm going to last, last whiskey to bring us home, the home stretch. And uh, look, and I think that's a smart call because you might need that for some of the names. So <laughs> as, as I mentioned before, so this is um, from last year and this year, Dave Rennie's named 77 players in squads, but there's 54 that he's used. Yep. And out of 54, um, 27 of them have played seven or less fixtures. So I'll, I'll just rattle off the names. And just as I go through, just because um, there's a few of them, just a yes or no as to whether you want to see them in Wallabies gold again. Yep. So starting to, they'll probably go from better to worse just based on the numbers. But Matt Tamua? <sighs> Why did you start with Matt Tamua? <laughs> I love Matt Tamua and I always have. At this time last year, I thought he should be made captain or vice captain and we should be building the yeah. team around him. He just didn't fire with the Rebels at all. So if I'm being honest, I'd probably say no. I probably uh, this is the, I'm going to I'm going to okay, I'm going to this is a caveat for for, for I'm not going to do this for each player this will be forever. <laughs> I'm going to put yeah. my emotion to the side. My emotion says I'd love okay. to see Matt Timmer make a comeback, but I'm going to if I'm being critical and objective and looking at who are the best players to take us as far as possible in France to his time, um, I don't think he's in it. So I'll say no. Yeah. And it's probably a good point because, yeah, a lot of these players, if I was in the same position, I'd, I'd have all these asterisks and, oh, well, in this circumstance, or, you know, but I, I do like them or respect them for this. Yeah. But yeah, the most, and this is the top bit for Renny is he's got to be quite cutthroat. Yeah. Are you, so, sorry, um, are you going to do 53 names or are you just going to handpick a few? No, okay, no. right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was, was going to say, otherwise, no, I have to so, go get another bottle of, uh, I, have to go, I have to dip into the, <laughs> the, the Scottish whiskey. Uh, just the, into the good. Yeah. No, so, this will just be the players that haven't played many tests yeah. for Rennie, but they've been given time and we just want to see if they'll play again. So, Filippo Dunguna, does he play again? No. Oh, nice. Lucky Swinton. Uh, yeah, I think he does. I think he's played himself into, yeah. into contention to be in the, in the squad. Now, these next two are probably a bit of a, a double whammy because mm. they're both 
super experienced, super seasoned, but they haven't played much recently because they've been overtaken. So Scott Co and Rob Simmons. Mate, I'm actually going to say no for both. Yeah. And again, I think they've been supplanted by <laughs> by younger younger guys that are proving themselves. Yeah. Uh, Rob Liotta. <sighs> I'd, 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 we're talking extended squad. Yeah, yeah, it's in a yeah I'd, squad. I'd probably say yes. He's, he's. I think he's. I think he's. I think he's done enough to keep himself in, in, in selection for another year. Because he has been quite involved, and I, I didn't like the name at first, mm. but he's played quite well. And we've already said yes to Quaid and Karevi if available, and obviously that's massive asterisks there. But um, someone used quite a bit last year, Ned Hannigan. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> no, no, from me because again, I just think with guys like Ned Hannigan, he, he take him out for a year. Has he been missed this year? You, you, I think we have to put him at the standard of Karevi of take him out. Is the team noticeably weaker in some way? And if they're not, then no. I, I think you've you've got you've got people in there. You just got to figure out which ones it is. Lockie Lonigan. No, but I, again, I think he's. Who's in? Who's 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 ahead of him? I mean, well, so far, um, Flaufying, uh, Tolu, uh, not Tolu, sorry, yeah. uh, Brandon Pangramosa and Jordan Yelassi have all got more caps than him under Rookie. Yeah, so they're probably the three. You know, I, I, I still like Steve Murphy as a hook, even though he, he's been sitting behind um, BPA, but he should be starting for the Reds for most of next season, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I imagine. Um, oh, is that Alex Murphy? Oh, uh, sorry, sorry, Alex Murphy. Yes, not Steve Murphy. Um, I, I got I pictured the big Tongan lock and I was like, hey, yeah, that, he wouldn't, wouldn't be too shabby to have him pack somewhere. Yeah. But, no, 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 you're right. Um, Alex Murphy, who who was sort of I thought came on and actually he did very well in the last season, but you know needs the game time. But like I, I'd put him, yeah. I'd put him and Lockie Lonergan on as par at the moment. And we could probably use some uh, tie into that Fletty Kaitu, mm. um, Connell McInerney, yeah, Tolu Lasu. They've all played a similar number of caps. Um, as you mentioned, because the tough spot, so we might leave them until the Wallabies sort that out a bit more. Um, Isi Nosserani, he played three caps over the last two years. Do we bring him back at all? No, I don't think there's a place for him. Yeah. Um, we touched on Arnold and Skelton as well, so they've only played a few games, but obviously, given the eligibility, that that probably changes a bit. Um, someone that played two games last year, Erase Simone, has he played his last Wallabies test? I think he probably has. Just again, like you know, Kellaway has come out. Um, we, we, you know, we're now sort of in a position where if Karevi is available, like who are the, who are our centres? I mean, if if the famous Vunavalu ever ever makes it back onto the scene, you got to think yeah. that he's going to be moving up the rung pretty quickly um, and 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 knocking on the door. Now, most of the other players sort of speak for themselves because they're you know either lack of options or young and only just cracked on. Mm-hmm. So Fraser McBride, we presume, makes the squad again, you know, yep. as an expect seven. Um, Isaiah Parisi, he's only been given a bit of minutes, but we presume he comes in as well. Two of the ones interesting, and they were just, you know, sort of by circumstance, but Greg Holmes and Ollie Hoskins, mm. two fairly old tight heads that got one extra cap this year just to fill a hold. Are they never to be seen again in the Wallabies? It's hard to say. Like I, I hadn't seen much of Ollie Hoskins. Um, I, I couldn't really remember his him from the force. Um, I think when I did the, the name rung a bell, but I had to. I, I admit I had to Google him. And um, but you, you do wonder. 
you know, if he's he's not there for a, you know, they would have they selected him for a reason. There would be guys that would have been analysing his game. He would have been on the radar. Imagine that you don't play for London Irish in Gallagher Premiership unless you know what you're doing. So he's a decent player. We yeah. didn't see much of him. Um, and that was, I was sort of, it was a shame. I was sort of hoping we, he might get a second run just so we could see what, what could he do with, you know, a second run. Um, again, if, if he's in the mix, if Dave Rennie says, this guy's actually not bad, he's probably slightly better than some of our other players or he's better placed because he's had more game time, you know, put it to the board, you, the board everyone meets and goes, okay, well, do we invest in getting this guy back to play? Does he go back to the force? Do you go chat to the Western force and say, look, we want this guy back because, you know, we think he he can he can really be, you know, he's only 28, not not really that old for a, for a, for a front rower. Um, and that's a question that has to be asked because, again, I don't like this idea that, well, let's just let them get paid for and looked after overseas. They're more valuable back in the the national setup some way, bring that IP back. And and if they're a far more developed player, then, well, the, the overseas benefit has been gained. You know, I think he's probably the best example of that. If he came back and signed for the force, 100% let him have another crack in the squad, let him keep training and playing, and we can see him week in, week out against, you know, our best players. Yeah. But it, again, it just calls for that reason. We need to get that... Um, that new rule established ASAP as to who can actually make this team. I've just Googled um, um, Ollie Hoskins two-year contract extension with London Irish this is dated November, 2019. So, you know, look, unless I'm not doing this correctly, this could be his last season on contract. Like he could be off contract in, in, in four or five months time. So we need either Tim Sampson. Um, we need Scott Johnson or, Maybe even Craig, if we can get at the lumber <laughs> on Twitter to um start chasing bring back, down Ollie Hoskins. Hashtag bring back Ollie. Bring back Ollie. Get that sea of blue just pumping that little bit louder. Brilliant. Yeah. Um look some of the other players, like they do speak for themselves. Unfortunately, on the list is Dane Haylett Petty, mm. who made the one cap last year and has unfortunately yeah. had to retire because what we would give for an experienced fullback like him. Yeah. Um, you know, just having the squad. But one of the ones that's interesting. Uh, and in a similar vein to erase the money is Lala Clark Fiketti, who made his debut this week and yeah. you know, made a really nice ball and all tackle and, you know, in the limited game time looked all right. Is that too soon to call on him? No, I mean, I mean, look, he, he's going to be around, right? So he's, he's not a, uh, I guess sort of my, my thing is, is what are we looking for in, in, in a, um, in our center combinations? And that's sort of like, I think I've spoken to you guys about this. Like my preference is actually to have a 12 who's almost like a second playmaker. Like I would love to see, I would have loved to have seen James O'Connor and um, even um, Alessio play 10, 12. And just to see, yeah. you know, and that, again, that's the sort of thing. If you had an Australia 18, you could maybe put him there and, and, you know, and, and test that sort of stuff out. He played for the Australia under 20s in that position. Um you know, what, what are we looking for? What do we want? Do we want the big ball crashing player at 12 or do we want a sort of second playmaker? And then does that sort of mean we need a bigger, more physical 13? And that's, again, sort of getting back to kind of saying, I hope Rennie's got enough questions answered in the last two years with all the players he's brought in and all the selections he's made to know exactly what he wants. Because if he doesn't and 
this time next year, we're still all sort of seeing lots of different players coming in and out, or there's new players blooded on the <laughs> spring tour 2022. I, I'm not going to be feeling as, as I'm going to be feeling very at ease <laughs> leading into the world cup. Well, look, that was all the players I wanted to go mm. through, but just even looking at those names, it is interesting because it highlighted two things. One, I think there were some that were very clear cut. No, mm. Um, which, which is, is probably good going forward because I'd like to think Rennie's in a similar position on some of them. Um, the other thing is there are some positions that you know are so open that we're undecided yep. as to whether they'll come through or not. So to me, just to go back probably five or ten minutes to the question about what I'd like to see next year, mm. I think now the really obvious answer is just who is our eight out of ten each week hooker? Who can deliver performances consistently um, at a level that you think, yep, perfect, they're ready for test rugby? Yeah. Because we have, I dare say, about seven hookers that are at about the same level. Yeah. And it's just shy of international um, starting test hooker for my. Yeah, look, Latu, Latu, yeah, he looked, you know, we didn't see much of him last week, but Latu looked pretty good today. Um, You know, the scrums. Scrum was was actually quite strong, um, yeah. and and you know you've got to you've got to say that yeah he's probably still probably one of the best hookers we have available, um, but it is fall into the same discussion as we've had already about you know do you go with that or do you try to sort of keep someone who's working within the system? Um, I don't know. There's going to be a question mark for the next couple of years, to be honest with you, and it wouldn't surprise me if no one puts their hand up that we're probably looking at Latu looking like being the safe option in 2023 if if they can get him back to play in sort of the the, the, the window in the middle of the year. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me. It really wouldn't surprise me if Latu and Bill are called upon for the World Cup and if they're not starting their, you know, their impact players. Well, I guess the nice thing is um, going to the last World Cup, I think, Latu and Poinga had about 10 to 15 caps mm. each, and then um, Gillespie had four. But now at a point where we've got um, Poinga and Latu both over 20 caps, uh, Gillespie and BPA both around 15. Mm. So at least we've got a bit more experience to call upon. But yeah, I'd, I would just love to see whoever it is just stand up and be that next option. Yeah. Okay, I want to throw this last here, and I might, might have to make this the last, um, the last part of our therapy session. I have enjoyed this, Rev, because. <laughs> it's given me a chance to just talk about stuff that otherwise I'm going to talk about in my head or talk about in the shower, which is just a bit, it's just plain <laughs> weird. So it's, it's nice to be able to, um, so I do appreciate you uh, making yourself available. Um, but also, you know, I hope it's been, I hope it's been somewhat therapeutic for you as well. It's been, it's been a big 24 hours. <laughs> no, it has. It's, um, it's made me feel quite different i think of straight off the back of that loss and seeing how well france played i was like gee how can we ever do that against new zealand and uh, a little bit of what was me but feeling a bit better I, now i, I couldn't yeah, i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't it. watch the um i couldn't go straight into watching the france new zealand actually uh, me and my missus watched um red notice which is on netflix it's a new film with the rock oh, um i gotta say yeah, i watched it last night yeah well look mate for me aside and look this is probably related because i you know this is a sort of film rugby podcast of sorts um it if it wasn't for Ryan Reynolds and his quick talking wise cracking, I think it was just a fairly worthless move. 
movie. It was the whole plot was ludicrous, but it was exactly what I needed just to completely cleanse yeah. my mind of um and, and emotions of 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 where they've, they've been uh just prior. What I want to end on, and I'm throwing I'm throwing you in the, the hot seat here. I'll, I'll go through one to 15 and I'd like you to name your best world 15 now based on, ah. you know, based on last month, but all this year. And it's interesting because I'm curious, because I, again, I, I throw this at you because you're one of the few people I probably could think of who would probably have an idea because you've been watching so many of the other countries, you've really been analyzing the, you know, a lot of the other competitions. And um, I'll just be curious to know, I have a few ideas. I was, I was thinking about this when I was like, God, that guy's so good. And I'll tell you who I was talking about. Um, but I'm just curious. I was like trying to go through my head. I'm like, yeah, I still don't know enough players to, to make an informed decision. But I feel feel like you, you've probably got a better idea. So if I can start with loose head prop at one, who would you go? Who would be in your world 15 right now? It's between Stephen Kitschoff and uh, Cyril Bay yep. of uh, France. But, I think I'll I'll try and just pick an outright winner. So I'll go uh, Kitschoff. Yep. Hooker. Cody Taylor. I think he's yeah. a freak. I think he's underutilized. Yeah. Uh, tight. Uh, tag Furlong. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. And and your locks four four five. Let's pick the combination. Uh, four. Evan Etzebeth. Um, I think this year has shown he's just still the enforcer. He's been unreal. Mm. Five gets tough. Um, like I probably should pick a Toje. I know he's a four lock, mm. um, but you know, World Player of the Year, and just he stands out in the big occasion. So I'll go Edzabeth and a Toje's locks. Yeah, that's solid. Uh, uh, blindside. Blindside is easily the hardest position to pick. I, I don't think there's many that consistently get picked for their uh, team that get there so if i'm picking just off the moment probably back in courtney laws i've really liked him mm. um i think he he just offers a lot so i'll i'll take him but he's going to be my least decisive pick out of the whole thing that was the first person i was thinking of for six so it's funny you mentioned that him yeah. or colosi i was i was thinking colosi actually had a really good year um yeah. uh set uh well uh let's go let's go around the back eight uh number eight Oh, see, this one's tough. To, I, I probably have to go Dwayne Vermeulen just for what he's doing for the Springboks still. It, it's quite remarkable. And I don't think there's been consistent picks for any one nation that's done enough to you. So that's, I'd still go Vermeulen. Yeah, fair enough. Seven. Michael Hooper by a country mile. No one's even close. Easy. Pick. 100%. And I, and, I, and, I, and I think we can say that. And you think you'd probably talk to most people from a non-Australian rugby country, and they should say Michael Hooper. I'd be surprised if they didn't. Yeah. Um, who's who's the halfback? Uh, Dupont. It's got to be Dupont. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, who's the combination then with at, at fly half? Right up until this morning, it would have been Richie Mwanga. Yeah. And I just remain into Mac like. I don't watch enough of him at club level, um, to be honest. So yeah. I, I don't see all that goodness. But like he's he's been great all year. But that was a masterclass. So you know, World Fifteen. If we're going on form, it's remaining smack. Man, when he ran it out of the twenty-two, the dead ball area, oh, I was like, geez. I was like, the French that, that that either ends very badly for French teams, or they like I'm surprised they didn't score a try in the end. Once they got the halfway mark, I'm like they'll score a try. This is insane, but. It's just there's a there's a 
that's to me that was the French attitude there. It wasn't just necessarily him. It's just like, oh, bugger it, we're going to run it. We're going to run it. They won't expect us to run it. <laughs> we're not going to touch it down. We're not going to kick it. We're just going to run it. And yeah, mate, it's yes. good play. Uh, okay, uh, uh, inside centre. Inside centre, Simon Ravi, and and that one's you know, if we're going for body of work, Damien Dillande has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd bit of, just, bit of, bit of, bit of shades of Morgan Tirinoe there. I love it. Love the, the body of work. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it'd be remiss of me not to mention that um, when I can just pay homage to yeah. the rugby ruckus. But yeah, no, I think Karevi's just, when he's playing, it is worlds apart from whenever he's not. Fair play. Um, outside him, 13. This again is a pretty tough one. Um, you can nearly throw a bit of a hula hoop around Lacanio M and um, mm. Gail Ficato, um, Ficato, Gail Fico, um, Henry Slade has been really good. I might might edge it to Slade just based off um, the Orton nations if we're going really off form. Yep. I think he's been really good. Yeah. Oh, that's fair enough. Fair call. Um, we've got okay. I guess we'll left wing, right wing. You can have whatever combination you want to you know name them. This one might have a bit of heat. Because there could be some potential bias scene, but uh, I'm going to go left wing Mapimpi and right wing Kellaway. Yeah, I, I think there are so many good wings at the moment, especially you know between some of those like Will Jordan, Louis Rissamet, like there's these superstars. Mm. Um, but to me, you get exact with Mapimpi. Kellaway is the smartest out of all yeah. them. So Tuilagi didn't uh, woo you last week with his <laughs> effort off the wing. Yeah. <laughs> I hate watching him play. He's just a bigger version of um, Pattaya, isn't he? Because yeah. you say, gee, what a wrecking ball. But then injured after, you know, after he came off the field immediately after his try. Yeah. And I just thought, I mean, massive impact, but how do you run with a team that has that much of a, you know, injury liability? Yeah. Who's the fullback of this to, to, to round out this uh, world-class 2021 World 15? Another tough one, but I'll, I'll go Melvin Jaminet, I think. Yeah. I want to pick him for two reasons. Firstly, he's been phenomenal. Yep. Um, he's played ridiculously well in every game I've seen, and his kicking is just nearly metronomic. It's it's just very impressive to watch him kick at six. But on top of that, I think it's worthwhile noting that he started the year coming from Perpignan, who in the Pro D2, um, the second div in France. Mm. And if there isn't a bigger, you know, case to be made for having a second tier competition in Australia. It's that the current, um, you know, French fullback, but also, you know, my World 15 fullback, which means a lot more than any other <laughs> accolade I can tell you, um, is someone that started the year in the second division of France. Like, you know, that second div does produce talent. We just need to have access to it. Yeah. Mate, that's a really impressive. I, I, the player I'm going to say, who, I, and this is probably contentious, and maybe I'm only going on just the last two weeks, my fullback, if I, and I'm going to put out a team as well. I might do this on Twitter. I'll put out your team as well. Is um, Freddie Stewart? I thought, wow, that yeah. guy is something. He, he actually reminded me of Israel Folau, just the way that he was taking the high ball, but the way he was moving through contacts and, and like he's really tall. He's like he's over six foot. Like he's a really tall guy for a full fullback. Yeah. But it's just like his ability in the high ball is such an asset, and I forgot. You forget how much of a of a strength that is, and you look at guys like Beal at fullback, and Beal's great, but you know he has to take a chess mark. He's not the biggest guy. He can come sometimes get out jumps, and um, 
yeah. Anyway, I was I was thinking I'd, I'd probably if I had a world fifteen now I'd start with him. But uh, yeah, there's, there's so many other players around. Um, mate, that's a that's a that's a, it's a sizzling team. I love you've gone with little little French mid course uh, in in the middle there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at, at the moment, in current form, it's it's a pretty good pretty good selection. That's that. I think it's probably um, a fair reflection of how how strong the teams are across the board. Is mm. You can nearly get players from you know any of the top eight teams, and they're not looking too out of place. I think I represented everyone in the top eight except maybe Scotland. So I, I thought Fid Russell might might make it, make a make crack a mention, but yeah. yeah, it's it's you know it's a hard one. I mean, Hog is probably a, a, a would be a contender for fullback as well. Um, it's a definitely and Chris Harris at thirteen yeah. doing Vendemover and the like. There's yeah. a lot of good players in there. It's um. It, Becoming increasing hard, which is a good thing, you know. It's more good quality rugby to watch. Yeah. Well, mate, look, I appreciate the the chat. Um, I we will we'll see what happens in the next week or two. I, I dare say there'll be, even though there won't be much rugby getting played, um, there may be some things that will happen in the news. There always is at the end of a season. There's always a, a, a and hopefully a positive one. But you know, there'll be something. I I think certainly as rugby fans in Australia, we 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 still need a few answers. A few questions answered by the start of next season around things like Wallaby eligibility and, you know, yeah, what are they going to do to try and sort of make it, you know, easier for our players to sort of perhaps access more game time and um, and get that, you know, get that development they need. But, um, mate, really do appreciate it. And, and I hope that, uh, yeah, you can go into the, the rest of the weekend and, and the next week, uh, you know, with it, with it, with it, with heads held high. At the end of the day, we we held Wales to almost one with fourteen men, which for me was, you know, I I I still love it when the when the players step up, and I think they did. I do feel that this team is trying to play as best as they can with what they've yeah. got. Yeah, there's so many positive signs, and I think this conversation has probably been a good thing for those people that are, you know, struggling to find that balance of, um, you know, optimistic but also realistic. Mm. there's so many nice things to look forward to and um you know this is the the motivation to take off the weighted blanket and to get out of the psychiatrist's couch then you know please use it as such make sure you got this in your ears when you go for your walk or your gym session because yeah there's plenty to like about the team coming through and while we haven't seen everything flourish just yet I, i do find myself in a much better position than I think we were at the end of 2017 in a very similar build-up to the World Cup. So I appreciate you having me on to chat about them. Yeah, no, appreciate it, Rev. We'll, we'll talk again and, uh, mate, have a great week. You too. This is the Gold Digger podcast series, a spin-off from the new feature documentary film, Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host Matt Durrant. Music is by Makeup and Vanity Set, sourced from musicbed.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby and follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.